as we know, there isn't a go-to medication for malopathy. A lot of the support groups members are on more than one medication with different symptoms and not all medications work for everyone. So this trial will be more than welcomed in the DCM community. Hello and welcome to Malopathy Matters, the official podcast of the charity Malopathy.org. Where we talk all things degenerative cervical myelopathy from the perspective of the professionals, the researchers and the people living with myelopathy. I'm Ewan Sadler, a person with DCM and a founder of Malopathy.org. And I'm Ben Davies, a neurosurgeon, scientist and also a founder of Myelopathy.org. This is Myelopathy Matters. So today is all about Recede Myelopathy, the first clinical trial in DCM looking at whether a drug can help repair the spinal cord. We're going to hear about the drug, how and why it might work, but also how it's now being tested in people living with the condition. Yes, Ben, it's great to see another research trial that Myelopathy.org has been heavily involved in, and also some of the community members have played an important role in helping to build some of the framework for this important trial. If any of the listeners want to know more about myelopathy.org and its research, then we have a new section about this on our New Look website. You're absolutely right. I think that comes through in the interviews today, that strong partnership between the myelopathy.org community and how this trial has evolved into on, on starting, essentially. And it's certainly been a long partnership. I think we, we first had conversations when we met about seven years ago, Ewan, and it's really great now to see this starting in Cambridge and, and really with an opportunity to ramp up in other centres across across the world. So today we're going to hear from the Chief Investigator, Dr. Mark Cotter, of course, also one of the founders of Mylofty.org. But first we're joined by Dr. Matt Suda, Chief Medical Officer from Medicinova, the pharmaceutical company behind this drug called Abudalast. And I started by asking her, what exactly is it? And Abudalast is an orally available small molecule and known to penetrate well into central nervous system. It was first discovered by a Japanese researcher during the drug screening process as, as a potent smooth muscle relaxant in 1980s. And pharmacology studies showed it has an anti-inflammatory and anti-platelet coagulation effect also relaxing airway muscle and improving brain blood flow. So accordingly, this drug was developed for treatment of post-stroke complications and bronchial asthma. And eventually it was approved in Japan in 1989. And initially mechanism action was considered a non-selective phosphodiesterase inhibitor mainly inhibiting PDE3, 4, 10, and 11. And because of its unique pharmacological profile, it has been a target of research interest by neuroscientists and immunologists. And many in vitro and in vivo studies suggested this drug has neuroprotective and glia attenuation effect by inhibiting inflammatory cytokines 
Where did Medicinova fit into this story and the evolution of Ubudalast? This drug was approved in 1989. However, some reason this drug was very attractive for the researcher and one after another, there's an in vitro, in vivo studies published in late 90s and um, 2000. And this neuroprotective effect, glia attenuation effect, which was not discovered when this drug was developed by Japanese pharmaceutical company. So this was kind of a later findings by effort of basic science researcher. So after seeing those research outcome, we really want to bring this to different new indication. And in order to do that, you know, we license in the relapsing the remission uh, multiple sclerosis indication from Japan. But unfortunately, that study was not successful. Uh, we could not show any clinical efficacy in preventing relapse. However, during the interim analysis, we found that this drug has potential to reduce or protect brain atrophy. So that was a kind of game changer that we thought this drug is not working for MS patient for anti-inflammatory purpose, but it has different effect to prevent neurodegeneration by preventing or slowing down the brain atrophy. So from then, uh, we are the kind of leader to develop um, Abudirast outside Japan. But it was not simply exploring the new indication, and we concentrated our own effort in two major things. And one is identifying the new mechanism action. We thought that um, PD inhibitor only cannot explain the neuroprotective effect and gliattenuation effect. And we thought that there must be other effect is hiding in this drug. And we identified that abudilast is allosteric MIF inhibitor. And it turned out that anti-MIF is the most potent effect of this drug. And later, we further identified that this drug has an anti-toll-like receptor for effect as well. And our other effort is we are reprofiling the daily dose and dosing regimen. We noticed that the human daily dose should be much higher than agent-approved dose in order to translate and maximize the preclinical findings in clinical setting. So currently, we are developing this drug in variety of different indications, including neurogenerative disease, oncology disease, and substance addiction, and acute lung injury. So you've obviously identified then that, that the dosing needs to be higher probably to maximize the potential benefit to the, the central nervous system. But in increasing that dose, does it still remain well tolerated by people? Because I think one of the very favorable things about the experience in stroke and asthma is that this has been a drug that's, that's been well tolerated by people. Right, that's true. Um, one of the known side effects of this drug was GI-related symptoms such as nausea, or vomiting or loose stool. And we know that this side effect is due to the rapid, steep, you know, increase of drug concentrations. So if you can control the release of this drug into the system, if you can slow down and slowly 
and dissolve in your blood, you can control the side effects. So we are also uh, putting our effort to developing better drug product currently. Because how today would somebody take a budlas? How is it actually taken? So uh, in our clinical trial, we are using up to 100 milligrams per day, which can be given uh, 50 milligrams in the morning and 50 milligrams in the evening. Or if patient cannot tolerate higher dose at one time, we can suggest to take the 30 milligram uh, three times a day or something like that. I think most of the patient can tolerate with drug after um, starting with lower dose for like two weeks and then slowly go up to 100 milligram per day. But some patients who cannot tolerate, they can still stay in the lower dose at the time, but give more frequently. And you mentioned those are the trials then and some of the, the indications. Is that what's been the, the experience and, and results from those trials? You know, are we seeing positive gains for, for other neurological conditions using a budalast? Yes. So in the PROGRESS multiple sclerosis trial, a budalast inhibited um, brain atrophy after two years treatment compared to placebo group. And our first ALS trial, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis trial, some ALS patients stabilize or improve disease progression after six months of treatment, which was very unexpected outcome for us because when we try to use this drug for ALS patient, we were expecting this drug may slow down the progression, but not stabilize or improve. In alcohol addiction study, um, abudidas treatment reduced alcohol craving and reduce heavy drinking days after 14 days treatment. And recently completed trial with inpatient, severe um, COVID-19 inpatient with lung disease, Abudira's treatment significantly improved clinical status with more patient improved from respiratory failure and able to discharge from hospital by day seven. So very promising. And obviously another sort of reference to the sort of quite broad range of types of condition that potentially a budalast has, has value in. I think one of the things that's, I think, important for people to hear is is the tremendous time commitments behind translating these drugs into practice. Because even with those positive results, which are further ahead than, than cervical myelopathy, how does that promise turn into treatments that patients can get access to? Well, first of all, um, you know, it sounds like this drug work for everything, like we are targeting all over the place. But there's a mutual thing in these, you know, indication we are targeting, drug addiction or neurogenitive disease or some oncology disease. We know that pathophysiology of those uh, disease or symptoms are highly related with glia or microglia activation and also highly expressed with MIF. So we are targeting um, this myth inhibition and also targeting this glia attenuation. These are the common thing of all these drugs. And same as this COVID-19, people think that, wow, after neurology disease indication, you're also targeting COVID-19. But same with COVID-19. Uh, we know that COVID-19 uh, serious symptom caused not only by virus itself, but also from your immune system cause overreact and cause cytokine storm. So this is a 
all the beauty of this drug has multiple uh, mechanisms action. And again, yes, we are in the phase two stage for all these indications. And once we have promising and successful uh, data with phase 2b, we really want to move on to phase 3 trial, which needs uh, more patient and maybe longer duration to commit uh, with development. But we are very optimistic with all these phase 2 trials, positive data. So let's return then to degenerative cervical myelopathy. How, how did you become interested in this particular condition? Yes, yeah, so actually, um, Professor Mark Cotter uh, from University of Cambridge contacted us in 2015, I believe. And that time, we were not quite familiar with pathophysiology of degenerative cervical myelopathy back then. But learning that increased in microglia activation has been observed in spinal cord, and pro-inflammatory cytokines can lead the necrosis and apoptosis, we believe that abutiris can be useful in DCM treatment combination with surgical treatment. So what is received myelopathy and what does it stand for, Mark? Received myelopathy is the first regenerative medicine trial for DCM. It stands for regeneration in cervical degenerative myelopathy. It's a double-blind placebo-controlled trial that uh, studies the effectiveness of Ibudolast for the recovery after surgery for DCM. So what were the origins of the Reseed Myelopathy trial? So the origin of the Reseed Myelopathy trial is really a research finding that we made in our academic lab. When we looked and studied uh, a stem cell population in the brain and spinal cord called oligodendrocyte precursor cells. So this cell is very important when it comes to regenerative processes in the central nervous system because it is, um, its role is to reestablish myelin sheaths when they're lost. And this is one of the pathological features that we've seen in patients that suffer from myelopathy. So we looked at functional mechanism that is controlled by a pathway that is called MAP kinase signaling. It's very techy. And in this pathway, there is an enzyme called phosphodiesterase 4. And we found if we inhibit phosphodiesterase 4, OPCs are better at regenerating myelin sheaths for two reasons. It stimulates their differentiation, but also it allows them to overcome inhibitory cues of the environment. And receipt myelopathy really applies this and other research findings as the first regenerative medicine trial in myelopathy. And so how do we get from that mechanistic process to hypothesizing that the drug in question here, Ibudilast, would be the, the right target or treatment, if you like, for, for bringing this into a human population? In addition to us, another group looked at phosphodiesterase 3 inhibition, which is another isoform of that enzyme, and showed that by inhibiting phosphodiesterase 3, you could ameliorate the onset of myelopathy in a, in, a, in a rat model. So the ideal combination for a drug, therefore, would be 
a drug that could inhibit both phosphodiesterase 3 and 4. And ibudilast just happens to be exactly that drug. And not only that, ibudilast has been used in the clinic in Japan for decades to treat another neurological condition, which is stroke. And that's also important because not all of the drugs are able to cross what's called the blood-brain barrier. So not all of the drugs can be used to treat neurological conditions. And so we felt that ibudilast was an ideal candidate for our trial. So how are you going to test ibudilast then in, in a population of people with, with DCN? So inhibiting phosphodiesterase 3 and 4 can address a number of points that are relevant for myelopathy. Number one, it can promote regeneration of myelin sheaths, but also regeneration of axons in the form of sprouting. It can also increase blood flow in the spinal cord, and this is how the drug has been used in the past. And all of this translates into potential gain of function. So from increased or better sensory functions to increased or better functions of your hands, of your walking, um, of your bladder. And so, but it could also modulate um, pain mechanism, which is leading to neuropathic pain in DCM. So that's the scientific basis. And what we then did was work with patients to find out what they expect from a trial like this and what the outcomes that they are most interested would be. And they agreed that function is important and therefore we use a very well validated scale, which is the MJOA scale, as one primary endpoint. But RECEED is unusual in that we also appointed a second primary endpoint um, that is essentially a pain scale um, which is another big aspect of how myelopathy can impact on individuals. So we have two primary endpoints, pain and function, and, and we work with patients to establish these as the, as the primary outcomes of the trial. And just to we'll pick up on this point a little bit in more detail, because I think it's, it is very interesting, because what you're essentially asking in this trial is that, you know, either of those things gains in either of those two different areas, function or pain, would be an indicator of success. Is that what you're saying? So the important thing to know is that regulators that ultimately are going to approve a drug will only look at the primary endpoint as to whether this drug can be recommended to treat individuals with myelopathy. And so it's really important that we have both outcomes as co-primary outcomes because that allows us also to power the study, which means make sure that we have enough individuals enrolled in order to make a final recommendation. So what is the design of received myelopathy? How is it actually going to run? We've designed received myelopathy in a way that it integrates seamlessly with current clinical practice. Individuals are going to be seen mainly in clinics when they meet their neurosurgeon who talks about surgery. And if they are eligible for surgery and they fulfill certain other criteria, uh, they can be approached uh, as to whether they're interested in participating in the trial. If they are happy to go forward after they've obviously read all the 
patient information sheets, etc., then they're going to be randomized into two different arms. One arm is going to be getting the drug, so Ibudilast, and the other one is going to get placebo. And the important thing here is neither the treating physician nor the individuals participating in the trial will know what of the two possibilities they're going to be taking. So this is called a double-blind design. And because patients are randomized, this is going to balance out the patient population and make sure that both arms are comparable. So patients will be on the drug a week before receiving surgery. They will stop the drug. And then after surgery, the second day or so, they will again continue to take the drug for a maximum of further six months. And so there are some fairly strict inclusion criteria about which type of patients can enroll in this. There seems to be various safety aspects related to the drug, including any sort of pre-existing heart, liver or blood disorders, but also quite strict criteria about whether or not the individual has any existing neurological comorbidities or even have had surgery for DCM before. Why was that decision taken? Because we are looking at the effects of a single drug here, and we don't want to confound or mask the outcome by contributions of other conditions. So, for example, there's a number of DCM patients that also suffer from lumbar spinal problems, and those can have an impact on the readouts the primary endpoints that we're using. And of course, then you potentially are not able to record the improvements that are related uh, to the drug or or the surgery because they're masked by the the symptoms that are caused by the lumbar issues that these patients have. We need to exclude those. And also we want to make sure that the drug doesn't have any effects on other conditions. And so we need to make sure that ideally we only catch individuals with DCM. And of course, you also have to think about the safety of the drug and minimize any risks. And therefore, we had to exclude typical diseases that could respond to the drug mechanism that we're testing. This is fairly standard in studies that look into the use of the drug for a new condition. And of course, the trial is also targeted, as you mentioned, at people undergoing surgery. Was there a decision behind why that was? I mean, is this something that you could see helping people who don't have surgery for DCM, for example? The animal studies that have prompted this trial really suggest that ibudilast can have an effect on regeneration. But what we also know is that as long as the pressure is on the spinal cord, there is very little to know regeneration. So surgery really sets us up, um, sets the spinal cord up for for being able to repair. And we hope that the repair that we usually see can be enhanced using Ibudilast, our study drug. And so surgery plays an important role. There is a possibility that the drug can also prevent symptoms occurring that are related to DCM, and therefore we decided to also already administer drug before surgery. And that would be also very pragmatic if you think about 
patients seeing their doctors, they could immediately start them on a drug that might be beneficial. But surgery plays a really important role in terms of our ability to improve neurological functions in DCM. So what's been your experience of developing this trial and, and bringing it to fruition? The special thing about receipt myelopathy was that it was developed in collaboration with individuals with DCM. And of course, myelopathy.org played a huge role in this as well. Not only we approached patients with regards to the patient information sheets and the material which was co-written by individuals with DCM, but we also involved them in the study design for example, making sure that the endpoints or the, the primary objectives of the trials match exactly what individuals with DCM care about. We also involve them in the design of follow-up appointments, how they get to the follow-up appointments to make sure that it has minimal impact on them. So this is one of the rare examples of a clinical trial where individuals that are affected by the condition had real input to. And it shows because receipt myelopathy targets many of the top research priorities that were established as part of our James Lind Alliance process, which teased out the 10 top research priorities in the field of DCM. So one of the, I guess, unusual things to some degree about received myelopathy is that you've, you've designed this trial to try and prove definitively the effectiveness, which perhaps jumps the gun, so to speak, on the precedent of translating drugs. First of all, you you know, you look at a sort of smaller trial to confirm that it's potentially okay or got some signals, and then you progress to this next stage where you've gone for it in, in one hit, if you like. Why was that, and, and what do you think the implications are going to be for that? So let me qualify this. We do include what's called an internal pilot, which is a phase where we want to make sure that the trial works, that the drug is safe and that patients are not at risk. But equally, we wanted to make sure that the people that have participated in the trial and the data that has been generated as part of that pilot can be used to shorten the timelines to the definitive answer. So by having this design as an internal pilot with a, in, as part of a phase three trial, we can get the best of two worlds. So how is the trial going so far? I mean, what do you foresee as the challenges that you're going to face to, to get this over the line? One of the biggest challenges in any clinical trial is to make sure that recruitment is on track. And the good news, of course, is that because it was designed together with patients, that um, this might be less of an issue. We've just started uh, recruitment in March this year in one centre, and I'm really happy about the recruitment uh, that is ongoing. We've been able to show that individuals are happy to participate. They're happy with the procedures and the, in the investigations that are part of received myelopathy. And uh, also we've established that the drug is safe and is well tolerated by individuals with DCM. How can people listening get involved in this trial? So we started this trial at the University of Cambridge, and we're looking to expand it across numerous other sites. The best way of getting involved is to turn to your local neurosurgery departments 
and highlight that this trial is ongoing and point them to, uh, towards us and we'd be very happy to add them as studies. It's a very technical interview there, I think both from, from Dr. Matsuda and, and Mark Ewan. Were you able to interpret that? What were your take-home messages? I've got to be honest to you, I'm going to have to Google a lot of the science behind this trial. But as a person with DCM, I think it's great that there is a potential for a simple tablet that can help address all the symptoms that myelopathy brings. As we know, there isn't a go-to medication for myelopathy. A lot of the support groups members are on more than one medication with different symptoms and not all medications work for everyone so this trial will be more than welcomed in the DCM community. I think that's a very important point and I infer from that in some degree at least that the part of that battle is against pain and we've certainly talked at length about pain on this podcast because that was something that was brought forward to us as professionals by listening to the myelopathy.org community. I mean, I remember the first time we met you in that research day in Cambridge, one of the goals of that meeting seven years ago of professionals with people uh, with a condition was to try to identify how exactly we should design this trial, recede uh, myelopathy. And we had this preconception as professionals that we should be focusing on hand and leg function, but you challenged us. And we went away, we gave it some more thought, we looked at the evidence. And as Mark was saying now, we have a trial running which targets both pain and movement. And in that time period it's been to get this trial off the ground, we certainly encountered strong opposition amongst professionals to the idea that pain is an important part of, of DCM. But as they say, an absence of evidence is not the same as evidence of absence. And the evidence is catching up now. Chad Cook's study is one excellent example we've covered in this podcast series. And I think it really gives further credibility to the idea that this trial is an important one. And if we can get benefits in any of those different areas, you know, be it pain or movement, we're going to have a drug that has value uh, to the community. Yeah, believe me, there's a lot of pain in many different places with myelopathy. You know, pain in places I never knew existed. And when we talk pain, it's not just nerve pain. You can have pain due to muscle spasms, also stomach pain, uh, because of your bladder and bowel issues. So, but still, some health professionals out there think it's a myth when you discuss bladder and bowel issues with myelopathy. Well, we're listening and we've all got our fingers crossed. I think there's a very good chance this can make a difference, but, you know, it's got to be put through the motions. We've got to prove that. And so let's see how this trial plays out. So what's up next month? Well, next month we're joined by a host of different experts as well as people from the myelopathy.org community to discuss cervical disc replacement, cervical arthroplasty, a type of surgery sometimes used for degenerative cervical myelopathy. So, of course, thanks very much to our guests, Dr. Mark Cotter, Dr. Matsuda, for joining us to discuss that drug, it would last and the trial received myelopathy. This was Myelopathy Matters from Myelopathy.org. The podcast is always produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. To keep up to date with the latest in the field of degenerative cervical myelopathy, why not subscribe on your favorite podcast app where you'll find all of our previous episodes. You can also now register with Myelopathy.org to be part of our research updates through the Recode DCM network. If you go to the website, a pop-up will appear simply filling your details and there's a quarterly newsletter. But if you've got a question about myelopathy, we'd love to hear it please get in touch at ben at myelopathy.org. But until next time, goodbye.